This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. One of the oldest African-American churches in Denver is Shorter Community AME, African Methodist Episcopal. It started as First Colored Church in 1868. Colorado was still a territory then. Today, it's housed in an angular, modern building on Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. On a recent Saturday, a crowd of about 200 people gathered in the sanctuary, not for a sermon, but to hear the pastor, Reverend Timothy Tyler, and his wife, Nita Mosby-Tyler, a diversity consultant, share their views on racism, part of a series hosted by the couple. Today's topic, that white people can't just be allies in fighting discrimination, they must be leaders. It just doesn't even make logical sense to me that the perpetrator of racism would be on the sidelines to end it. The audience includes blacks, whites, Hispanics, and people of different religious backgrounds. And we're here as part of a reporting project focused on discrimination. NPR is looking at this nationally. We call it Here's What Happened, My Story of Discrimination. In a survey NPR commissioned, 92% of African Americans believe discrimination against them exists today in America. It's the highest of all the groups polled. As we'll hear, blacks in Colorado say they feel this every day. It's almost like background noise. In NPR's survey, 60% of African Americans say they or a family member have been treated unfairly by police because of their race. Deborah Ioli came in from Boulder. She's white. I feel like I can drive my car anywhere. I can go through a stoplight or a stop sign and make a mistake. I can pull over to the curb and not be afraid for my life. I don't have to teach my son how to be in the world so he won't get hurt. Ioli says she's at the forum to understand the views of racism from the black community because I live, she says, in a very white world. Also in the audience is John Coleman of Denver, who's black. He told us about a time he went to a police station to file a report the perception was that first I was there to either turn myself in or I was a criminal or I had some sort of history. I'm not going to say which district, but this was about six to seven years ago in Denver. I mean, before even figuring out who I was or why I was there was that I was there to, to represent myself as a criminal or I'm, I'm there to do something that a black man would be there to do. The Tylers, again, who are hosting this event, say they were moved to start these forums after racial tensions boiled over in Charlottesville, Virginia. And they bring their own personal experiences, too. I asked Nita how much discrimination weighs on her. Well, it weighs on me heavily because it um, has been a part of me for so long. I think the older you get, the more the weight. And it started very early in my life, really, because I grew up in the segregated South. So this has been just a core part of normal life as a black person in America for me. It's what I know best. And I know it so well that I can see it coming. I have my moves and my armor already up. Um, what does that look like? Um, let's just say um, I have preempted any pain that might come out of discrimination. Typically, I am the only black woman, or I might be the most educated black woman. Um, In neighborhoods that I've lived in, I've been the only black family. I'll never forget when I initially moved to Denver in 1996. I moved into a community where there was not another black family. And it was just me and my seven-year-old daughter at the time. 
And I remember there was a big community gathering, and we decided we'd go and we'd meet our our neighbors. And one of the neighbors said, now what football player are you married to? And they just assumed that the only way that I could have been living there... In, in that ritzy neighborhood. Right. Is that I must have been married to an athlete. And it just meant absolutely nothing that she would just say that casually. So over time, I just have normalized that sort of thinking in my own head. So when it happens, I'm not as devastated or traumatized by it. That's the armor you've built. That's the armor that I've built. Now, let's join the Tylers on stage in a brightly lit sanctuary surrounded by stained glass portraits of prominent African-Americans. Before they opened the conversation up to the audience... They had a PowerPoint presentation. So the last bullet is uh, a bit of irony and a bit of power for us to also think about as we talk about systemic racism and those kind of things that we want to eradicate. And that is, predominantly, if you think about our municipal leaders, almost all of them are African-American, our mayor, our police chief, our manager of safety, used to be that our sheriff was, our city council president. We've got people of color leading major um, parts of our government. Isn't that progressive and good? But if behind those leaders is still the construct of racism and it's institutionalized and it's in the structure, I don't know how progressive that really is then. And so we have to make sure we're not being fooled when we start to see diversity in front of a system that really has inequity built all the way through it. So I just wanted to provide a little bit of context about some of our demographics here. And and Dr. Nita, I say this in my sleep. I say it every chance I get. And since there are so many uh, new participants here this morning, oftentimes uh, our white brothers and sisters have a hard time seeing why we're fighting fighting institutions and systems. Uh, Well, the mayor is black. The police chief is black. So this can't be racism. And so I can't say it enough. Even, I'll, I'll, I'll make the point even more harsh. Even in the time of slavery, there were black faces who were made to oversee the plantation for the system and the culture. And so as we look at that history, just because all the faces are black, that does not mean that the system and the structure is not racist. Searing words for the audience. A little later, I'll ask Reverend Tyler about them. But as their presentation continues, the Tylers point out a sobering fact about their congregation, something that has come up in earlier forums. Slavery uh, wasn't that long ago. Nita, you kind of gave us a lot of groundwork on that. Yeah, we we actually talked about the four or five members of our church that are over 100 years old, which means they are probably one generation away from slavery. And we talked about family members that we have that are one or two generations away from slavery. So it is quite possible that you are sitting in the midst of people each and every day that are just a generation or so away from slavery. And I think we have to remember that when we start to talk about historical trauma, we're not talking about necessarily four generations ago. In some cases, it's just one. 
Remember, the theme of this event is how white people have to be more than allies in the fight against racism. They have to be leaders in it. And before opening up the discussion to the audience, Reverend Tyler struck a note of harmony. Whether you're ally or leader, leader or ally, the only way we're going to win what looks like an insurmountable war is when we bind together. What a taste and a flavor that will be. Yes, that got lots of applause, but a member of the audience later countered his call to bind together, likening whites to an abusive spouse. This is Vicki Dillard Crow of Denver. If you're in a domestic violence situation by a man that's been beating you for four years, and we've been beaten, killed for 400 plus years, we would not advocate that person staying in that relationship. There needs to be a period of separation. The emphasis has to be, I'm more concerned about those that you're killing than I am about hurting your feelings today. That comment didn't get an immediate reaction in the sanctuary. But as we'll hear later, it hit a biracial woman in the audience hard. As the conversation continued, a woman who's white and who didn't give her name shared this. I come, or I live right now, in a zip code that has a lot of privilege and is great at advocating for itself. And as a result, the police, DPS, we get a lot of ears in our community. Mm -hmm. And I very, very often feel that that people are listening to us disproportionately Mm -hmm. um, and that I would like to be able to advocate for people who don't have that same ear. Another participant echoed that noting how Denver's explosive growth pushes out people of color and poor folks. Once the discussion wound down, the Tylers came off stage, shook hands with their guests, and sat down with me at a conference room in the church. I asked Reverend Tyler more about his comparison between Denver's African-American leadership and slaves who were given responsibility on the plantation. In my city, Denver, there is too often the assumption that because black faces are in charge, that the nefarious nature of racism and racist culture does not exist or cannot exist. I've had conversations with white people who failed to get on board simply because they didn't understand how you could call something racist when black people were in power or people of color are in power. And I've had to share with them that our work is is not personal. It's not against personalities all the time. But our work is deeper than that. It's tearing down structures and systems that have been in place long before the faces got there and the faces have changed over the years. But the system and the structure and those who benefit from it have long been players, and we've got to look beyond the personal thing. And let me say this. Uh, uh, we talk about why black people don't get involved. And this, I this was a major thrust of your talk today, which is why, and it, to use your words, mm-hmm. when there are progressive movements mm-hmm. that are presumably in search of more equality, mm-hmm. why don't people of color, or specifically African Americans, get involved, perhaps as much as you hope they would? Yes. In Denver, we oftentimes have trouble speaking truth to power when the power is black because of the relationships that we have with the people who are in power. And so you can't expect a particular church to go out and protest something when the mayor 
the mayor may be a member of their deacon board. If that's my fraternity brother, and fraternity and sorority is a big deal for, for old and young people in the black community. We don't give up our fraternities and sororities when we leave college. In fact, and we get stronger in them. And oftentimes, just case in point, when uh, Marvin Booker, who is, that's a familiar name, was killed in the Denver Sheriff Department. Uh, I called At the a, jail. At the jail. I called a, a meeting of community organizations and, and black Greek organizations to help us to, to fight that battle. And one organization responded to me that they could not come to that meeting because their fraternity brother was the sheriff of Denver and they didn't want to be seen in that light. And so I'm just making that point to say that a lot of times it's our relationships, who we went to school with, who we're related to, who's our church member. And oftentimes those relationships prevent us from coming out to participate, even when we know the cause is just. And so that's just some family stuff Mm -hmm. that we as black people have to deal with and try to get over and see that sometimes the cause is more just than our relationship. The other part of that is if you're... If you love somebody and they're part of your family, you ought to be willing to tell them when they're wrong. And so we've just got to get past this thing that our relationships are so strong that we won't work together with each other to make a more just community. That's Reverend Timothy Tyler of Shorter Community AME, one of the oldest black churches in Denver. He and his wife, who's a diversity consultant, have been hosting forums on race and discrimination. When we come back, we'll sit down with some of the participants, white and black. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We're reporting on discrimination in conjunction with a national project from NPR. Discrimination against blacks, Hispanics, LGBT people, and whites. How this shows up in law enforcement, employment, health care. Locally, we're calling it Here's What Happened, My Discrimination Story. Today, we've come to one of Colorado's oldest black churches, Shorter Community AME in Denver, to listen to a forum they held on racism. After the event wrapped up, we gathered a few of the participants, black and white, to talk further. I'm Gregory Diggs. Um, I'm one of the first residents of Stapleton. I could tell a lot of stories, but I'm going I'm to I'm tell this. One of the more contemporary things for me is that I was privileged enough to live in the community that I live in. And my son was three years old when we moved to Stapleton. And then he became 10 years old and I had to start having a conversation with him, the talk, we call it, as he's gonna be moving out on his own, riding his bike and playing, and letting him know that you've gotta be aware that people are gonna see you differently than Um, you might expect. And when he was 10, he didn't really understand it, but I knew that I had to tell him. Two years later, Trayvon Martin happened. This was the young man gunned down in Florida. And it broke my heart. I'm going to see if I can do this without crying. It broke my heart to watch my son watching this on television, transfixed and understanding that that's me. That, 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 that's me. He started to be aware that people would see him, white people, and move across the street. He would go to stores and be followed. And some people would even have the nerve to say stuff to him 
as if he did not belong there. And he's like, Daddy, what are they talking about? I'm the original resident. These people are in my neighborhood. How are they going to be treating me like I don't belong here? As I grew up, I've faced all kinds of different things, and that's just my life. But it broke my heart that my children have had to experience that too. And that's my pain that I live with. It's not even my personal experience. It's that I thought we were further along, and it turns out that we're not. My name is Rick Bailey, and I'm a resident of Denver, Colorado. Um, I have lived a very privileged life, and I think that I have always had good intentions and good thoughts, but I haven't really ever done anything about that in the way of activism or anything. And I think that that is because of living in this sort of bubble of, of white privilege. And that bubble of white privilege has to do with the institutions that, that we live in. And if you grow up just as a, as a uh, white person that's enjoying all of the uh, institutional privileges that are given to us, and I have never had to uh, have fear dealing with a police officer or reporting something to a police officer, you know, you, you just don't realize what's going on. And suddenly, though, and maybe not so suddenly, in about the last 12 to 18 months, I've started to become profoundly concerned about our institutions and profoundly troubled by the things that are being said by people that were running for office or that are now in office, to the point of feeling sick in my soul that things were not the way in our country the way that I thought they were. It made me feel like I didn't realize what what was going on here. I didn't realize how deeply embedded racism is or and, and racism against black people, racism against uh, immigrants, against Latinos, against people, from, against Muslims, people from other countries. Mm -hmm. And it just, you know, shook me to the core. Um, my name's Erica Tolliver. The burning thing for me, or I guess, um, Maybe it's more of, I just have to get it off of me, I guess, is I, ha I heard a woman say today about um, we should be segregated. I, I don't know, that wasn't her words, but I took, my interpretation was to be segregated. She was questioning whether integration is a worthy goal at this yes. point. And I guess for me, because I am a multiracial person, so um, honestly, I've never experienced discrimination or racism growing up. I grew up in Cherry Creek neighborhoods with mm. white children, never had any issues. When I went to Montbello High School with nothing but black children, I was an outcast because I didn't sound like them. I didn't walk like them. I didn't talk like them. Um, I, they said I was better than them. And I didn't feel like I was. I felt like I you know, just was getting to know people and begged my mom to go to Montbello High School because I wanted to be around my people. So when I, you say my people, you mean people, people with darker skin yes, like yourself? That looked like me. Uh -huh. Because of course I identify as a black woman, but like I said, I'm multiracial. So I guess today for me to hear that, it kind of hit me hard because I feel like if we're this far, I'm sorry, I'm very emotional as well. It just really got to me because I love all people. So I feel like in these race talks, real talks, there shouldn't be ever, ever anything saying we should be segregated. And that's all I had to say.
Can I run something by you that has troubled me? And it's something I'm guilty of as a journalist. When Barack Obama was elected president, he was often called the first black president. He, he too, like you, was multiracial. It's so interesting that he was often referred to as the first black president when, in a way, he's as much white as he is black. How do you struggle with people's desire to label you something? And that, you know, there's been this history, a long history of if you have a drop of black blood, you are black. Yes. And doesn't that put you in a box? That's society. Like you said, the minute they say there's a drop of blood in you, you're automatically black. I am a black woman. I am, um, I have Indian in me, Cherokee Indian. I have Caucasian in me. I have a lot of different races within me. But I am a black woman because society says I am. And I'm okay with that. I love being a black woman. But if you were to call me a Caucasian woman, I wouldn't be angry either. I'd say, yes, that's within me. But I guess like with Barack, like you said, honestly, there were black people as well that said that's not our first black president. Because again, they didn't see him as a 100% black man because of the way he looked. And it shouldn't be about his race anyway. I like that you call him Barack. You just, Barack. And Gregory, go ahead. I want to interject something here. There is this myth in America that if only black people or people of color would just act right, things would be better. And I'm moved to speak about Barack Obama as an example, because here you have a man who was uh, Ivy League educated, you know, state senator, president of the United States, constitutional scholar, and he had done everything that we expect people to do, but still he was not American even. Somehow, here's this Christian man who is a Muslim, who is African and not American, and in some cases, to the extremes, a monkey, okay? And the point I want to make, I could talk a long time about this, is his presidency exposed the myth that you somehow, if we do what we're supposed to do, everything will be okay. And I guess my punchline is, you can't behave yourself out of the color of your skin. That is Gregory Diggs, who lives in Denver's Stapleton neighborhood. He attended a recent forum on racism at Shorter Community AME, one of Denver's oldest black churches. So where do the participants go from here? Well, the hosts, Reverend Timothy Tyler and his wife, Nita Mosby Tyler, urged people to do some homework Online tests developed by a team of researchers that gauge unconscious bias towards all sorts of groups, blacks, people of different faiths, even those who are overweight. There's a link to the tests at CPR.org. Finally, Nita had no illusions that people would walk out of the church and transform race relations in this country overnight. It's slow work, she says, likening it to the craftsmen who built cathedrals. They knew the entire time they were doing it that they'd never live to see the final product. They knew it. Can you imagine? They knew the entire time they were working hard every day that they would never see the the end of the thing they were building. I don't know that we're going to see the final project either. And we have to sit with that. But... We have to be 
just as committed, dedicated, fight just as hard, relentlessly, as if we were going to see the end of it. Absolutely. Nita Mosby-Tyler, part of CPR's series, Here's What Happened, My Discrimination Story. If you have a story to contribute, your own experience with prejudice, reach us at CPR.org and click Connect. This is Colorado Matters. Colorado needs more foster parents, in part because the state wants to place kids in a family setting, not an institutional one. Hope 40 of Colorado Springs has started Foster Together Colorado to recruit and support families. Earlier this year, the state honored her for her dedication to kids in the foster system. And her point is, there are ways to help even if you can't take a child in. And Hope, welcome to the program. Thank you. You and your husband have been foster parents to four kids. What prompted you to try it out in the first place? Honestly, it was the birth of our first son, um, our only son, actually. And I remember sitting in the hospital room um, when he was he was actually in the NICU for some breathing problems and looking. We had this beautiful view of the whole front range there in Colorado Springs and looking out and realizing this little baby in my arms was so utterly dependent on me. I mean, I'd heard people say, you know, parenting is so important and how you're raised is so important in the rest of your life. But when I was holding him, I realized that the way I raise him for the next 18 years or so is going to define how he's able to trust other people, how he's able to have relationships with people, whether he knows that he's secure enough to have food the next day. And so it kind of woke me up to, wow, like this different level of responsibility that parents have. But you you saw that as then translating to other children who needed that same support. Yes, because I'd always heard about foster care, and this is something I'm passionate about, is that people hear about foster care peripherally, but don't always bring it home to their own life. And so then as soon as um, we've kind of gotten through those first six months with him and again, seen the kind of the power of what we would be doing over the next 18 years with him, we thought, okay, we've got to figure out how to, we don't know any kids who need help. We don't know any kids in our social circle that um, are at risk for, for things like abuse or neglect. And so how do we get involved? And so what we did is foster care seemed really scary to us. It seemed like, okay, like that's a little crazy. We won't do that. But we could do something like um, volunteer to be court advocates. And that's something we did um, through a program called CASA. And so we actually had um, a situation where my husband and I were, um, it's kind of like you are mentoring the kid, but you also show up to court and speak on their behalf. Um, this is a way to dip your toe yeah. in the water in some regards yeah. without becoming foster parents mm-hmm. immediately. Exactly. And you are really trying to spread the message that this is possible for other families mm-hmm. as well. So you can be a court uh, a court buddy, if court you will, advocate. an yep. advocate. Mm-hmm. What are other ways that you can help a foster child, even if you can't take a foster child in? Yeah. So our our big message that we are trying to get out to people is that the when you're supporting the foster family, you're supporting the foster child because oftentimes the children are the the burden of foster care is quite significant on a family and and you'd think these people are um compensated or um, supported in a way that we do for our our first responders and other kinds of emergency situations, but 
really, it's just a regular family with some training and some some support from the county. But we find that when there's support for the family, like babysitting, um, meal drop-offs, a weekly lasagna that they can count on, um, that prevents the kids from being such a, and, and really the foster care system, from being such a burden on that family that the parents can't do it anymore. And so that prevents kids from moving from foster home to foster home. And this is your mission with Foster Together it Colorado. Is. To make it easy for people to connect with a family. With a family. And would, would anyone who's in contact with the child have to have uh, some sort of background screening mm-hmm. or some training? Yeah, and in contact with the child is not even the, the main thing that we um, find that's needed for foster family support. But even just in contact with that foster parent and saying, Here's what I'm good at. Here's what I would like to do for you. Can I do that for you this week? There is, of course, payment to foster families. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about your own experience sure. as a foster parent. Does Colorado pay uh, well compared to other states? And does that begin to truly cover the expenses? Well, it's called a reimbursement because it's supposed to be used. And it, in most, almost all cases, all cases that I've seen personally, is used for the child's expenses. So if you need some extra food. Um, to give you an idea, it's anywhere from 16 to $30 per day per child. And so it's really nothing even close to compensation. And there's a bad stereotype around that um, as, as far as people saying, oh, people do it for the money. What I found is um, I haven't actually met anyone I would say does it for the money. I've seen some people who, you know, try to keep their, their home full so that it's um, at least somewhat su- supplemental. But in general, the, the thing that I've seen that would be more of a problem than doing it for the money is people who do it without emotional investment. And I actually haven't met anyone like that in personally, but I have seen people, um, friends of friends who who've said, oh, this, this child really seems like they weren't in a home that was emotionally invested. But yes. I've seen p- people from all income brackets be emotionally available foster parents, and that's what I think is huge. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Hope Forty of Colorado Springs, who has started Foster Together Colorado. This is to both recruit foster families and to help support them. And I, I want to get to your own experiences as a foster parent. So uh, you said that uh, having your own biological child is what opened your eyes to wanting to help more children. Mm-hmm. And how did it go the first time you became a foster family? So the first time we did it, we had actually um, just moved to Denver for a short time. And we didn't have any of our our tribe around us, our people around us. Um, we have a fantastic group of friends and family down in the Springs um, who've been supportive of us. You've, you've created your own village, in other words, yeah. uh, around your foster family. But that wasn't the case. That wasn't the case our first time. And I would say that um, that made it a really difficult time. We had two little girls um, that we were fostering. And because we had the one son, we kind of thought, oh, well, we're, we've got one kid. Like, what's two more? And it ended up being a lot more than we were ready for. And um, I remember um, it was they were removed from their parents for extreme neglect. And oftentimes that's actually what we see more than extreme abuse is the neglect. So maybe the parents are going um, to work and don't have adequate child care. So they leave the children in. At a, at a very house. young age. Yeah. And um, much, much younger than even kindergarten or first grade. And um, I remember 
the one little girl that we had, I went out to water the flowers in the backyard and she started screaming. This was about a weekend. Mommy, don't leave me. Don't leave me. And that was the kind of eye-opening experience for me that said this um, trauma that the children go through requires so much love and so much attention to begin to heal. And that that kind of um, need is why we have to be supporting the foster parents that we have. I think it takes probably about 10 people to support a foster family well. Yeah, it really sounds to me like you don't think foster parents, mm-hmm. foster families, one, can do it alone, or two, should mm-hmm. do it alone. Right. That, that's a false assumption. Right. And, mm-hmm. and our, our Colorado foster families are lasting about, on average, about two years right now because they, they're not getting that kind of support. About two years. Mm-hmm. And how long is the need? I mean, it could go on for much longer than yeah, that? Yeah. I mean, we, Colorado would love to keep foster parents for decades because... Okay. That first go-round didn't work out no, long-term. It didn't. And the, the girls actually ended up going to family, which is preferable. Um, and they um, were glad about that. Um, but what we ended up doing from then on is my husband and I really evaluated what are we able to do, and we decided one child at a time. And so how did the second volley go? We had a newborn baby, and he. Um, we we wanted to know kind of early on, okay, is this going to turn into an adoption, or is this going to be something where we're, what we like to do in, in foster care is reunify the children with their parents. That's, That's the always, the always the preferable avenue. Mm-hmm. But yeah. sometimes it leads to adoption. It does sometimes. Um, we're actually, I think Colorado's re- reunifying kids at about 60% right now. And um, we, what my husband Kyle and I really love is to um, bridge the gap where it's not just, okay, here you're in foster care, then you go home and the contact is cut off. But we, as as difficult as it can be, sometimes we try to make them our extended family. And so we sat down. Um, my point was that we were sitting down with the mom early on and said, what's what's your plan? Are you, are you really working on getting this baby back? And she convinced us that she was. And so from then on, we had the attitude toward her of let's come alongside you and let's respect you as his mother. With the idea that the child would return mm-hmm. uh, to the mother. And he did. Mm-hmm. And he's still with her. Uh, and so that raises all kinds of questions, I suppose, for potential foster families, mm-hmm. which is what if you develop an attachment mm-hmm. to that child? Yeah. And how do you deal with that? So we really like to say that the most important thing the kids need from us at that time is an attachment. Um, because so, so an attachment is non-negotiable for a good foster parent. They want to attach because that's the only way the child's going to heal, learn to trust, learn that they're loved and valuable. At the same time, we come in, and this is one of our key points with Foster Together, is coming in with the attitude of, Let's reunify this child, if at all possible, with their parent. So trying to live really with those two truths Mm -hmm. of knowing that reunification is the goal, but also not letting that be a barrier Mm -hmm. to attachment. Yeah. And so you you kind of don't necessarily see yourself as you're always – I'm always balancing it in my head. On a primal level, I want to bond with this child as I did my own newborn son. On the, on the other level, I mentally know this is not my baby. I'm not p- going to be possessive of this baby. And so I um, – and I think having a real relationship with his mom where I'm seeing her every couple of weeks and I'm going out of my way to say, how can I help you mother this baby? And you maintain a relationship with yes. that child? Yes. We te- yeah, and, and with the mom. We text all the time, and she lets me know when she needs something. And we're kind of here as a, as a safety net, but it's always 
Um, you know, it's always this working out of making sure that we're not taking away her independence or her motivation to do it on her own. Colorado has said that it needs, in particular, foster families of color yes. uh, that reflect the diversity of children in the foster yes. care system. Can you speak to that for just a bit? Yes. Well, it's important for kids to not be pulled out of their community and stuck into a community where they can't visually identify with somebody else. Um, and, and there are cultural differences, too, sometimes. Um, and so we we want to be able to place children in a community where they feel identity right off the bat without having to um, feel like they're just the loner. And so that applies to not just the skin color, but are we able to place them in a neighborhood where they don't have to switch schools? I actually, with Foster Together, we just um, sent a, a, a monthly meal to um, a foster mom of color, actually, who um, they're a black family, and they are fostering two children and have agreed to take the child, one of the children, to a different district than their children go to school in so that she can stay in her school rather than having to move. Because that's part of the goal here as well in recruiting families is to Mm -hmm. make sure that you don't have to send kids perhaps far out of a county or out of a particular Mm -hmm. district and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Before we go, why, uh, why do you do this and why will you continue to do this, do you think? I do this because... First of all, going back to my son again, I want him to grow up in a home where he knows that this is where kids come when they need to be safe. And he is um, he'll, he'll be four in December, and he already knows that uh, we take care of babies and kids when they, their mom and dad need a little extra help. And I want him to know that. And I want to be—this is a time where everyone is concerned about the disconnection and the um, the— crisis overwhelm of of this world where we're always seeing these terrible headlines, but we want to be personally connected to that. Hope, thanks for being with us. Thank you. And for sharing this word that you don't have to be a foster parent to support one. Mm-hmm. That's Hope Forty. She is a foster parent in Colorado Springs, and she and her husband have recently started Foster Together Colorado. And the state recently put out a call for more foster parents, predicting a shortage in coming years. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Let's take you to softball practice. For the Colorado Peaches, Coach Gail Clock gives the lineup. Carol is catching still. Cindy Kay is pitching. Fran, you're going to be at first. Maggie at second. Sandy R at third. Eileen at shortstop. This isn't just any softball team. The Maggie, who's playing at second base, Magdalena McCloskey, is 86 years old, making her the most senior peach. I was always a runner. I mean, that was my big contribution when I joined the team. And I joined the team when I was 77. I was telling my son about it, about these amazing women that play softball and, you know, how old we are. And and he said, Mom, you're the rookie. All of the Peaches are over 50. The team had been practicing once a week since April, preparing for the Huntsman Games, an international senior competition that took place in Utah in October. Again, Coach Clock. The goals, in my mind, the goals for the group are more that you compete with yourself to be as good as you can be. 
And when that comes together with all the individuals, the team is stronger and has a chance of winning. I don't base winning on the score. I base winning on the effort, the improvement, and how we put that together when we're in competition. Maggie McCloskey, who's on second base, says she's 100% better now than when she was a 77-year-old rookie nine years ago. Both as an athlete and as a person, she says all the peaches feel similarly. You can begin at any age. It's like you're never too old to play. And, uh, and that play element is so, so important. But yes, being on a team, I mean, I, I could go on and on about teamwork. Uh, it's, just, it's just awesome. You kind of have to let go of your, your personality, your ego, and all of your beliefs and your positions, and, uh, and you get out there and, and all that falls away. And Maggie McCloskey and Coach Gail Clock of the Colorado Peaches are now in the studio with me. Thank you both for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Coach Clock, we heard Maggie say that you're never too old to play. Now, that's a, a lovely sentiment for sure. Is it true, do you think? It is true. And the players I've known for some time have actually gotten younger in terms of how they move, their endurance, and how they perform. I guess that's just the idea of keeping fluid. Yes, it is. It's And it's surprised me. I, even though I coached all my life, I didn't anticipate that. Uh, Maggie, are you uh, in pain a lot when you play? How do you feel when you're on the field? Um, when I play, I'm not aware of any pain. Afterwards? <laughs> 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 yes, I hurt. Um, I do have um, something. I don't even like to say it, but it's arthritis. And uh, but it never holds me back. And do you think it helps at all with the arthritis? It absolutely helps. You just keep moving. You keep moving. I understand, uh, Coach, that you also have a team of younger women that you coach, and I wonder if you might compare and contrast what it is to coach uh, younger players versus older players. Do you change your approach? Do you change your expectations, or what? Very little, actually. Um, I see it very similarly, and I tell the younger players that, and they're astounded. And it also motivates them to work harder. There, that, that is to say the younger players know of the peaches. They do know of the peaches, and a few of the peaches have come and watched the high school kids play, and the high school kids are delighted by the fact that someone has an interest in them. You must have to be aware, though, of the potential for injury, which is different among these players. It is. You have to be aware of what can happen and how it might happen, but you don't anticipate that it will. How long do you think you'll play, Maggie? Um, I hope to play until I'm maybe in my 90s. Um, yeah, that's an interesting question because I, I don't know that I want to live forever, you know. I, you know, it's time to recycle this body and um, <laughs> and move on. But I want to live playing I want to explore this idea that you don't want to live forever because longevity is so um, kind of lionized in our society. What what makes you say there's a point where it's time? What did you say? It's time to recycle this body. Right. It's it's time to move on. I do want to. I want to live fully until I'm ready to 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 check out. Yeah. You were a nun at one point, and did you play sports in the convent? Yes, we were always, we played a lot of sports in the convent, yeah. 
played volleyball and uh, some softball, not very much, but yeah, we were very active. And so you had an active life before this? I did. Is that key, Coach? Must you have led an active life before joining the Peaches to succeed? I don't think so, because there are some people that that wasn't the case. They hadn't done much before. They certainly had not done things in terms of organized sports. A lot of them didn't have an opportunity, being the ages they were for girls and women. Until Title IX got passed in 1972, there weren't opportunities within the schools to play. There were a few exceptions with areas of the country where people got to play that are on this team, but very little. And I think that's one of the reasons they're still so excited about playing. It hasn't been overdone when they were young. That concerns me with young players that are getting burned out before they leave high school. Mm. I understand that you teach the Peaches to run properly. I do, and they do it well. And it's incredible to see the change in their stride, their speed, their performance, their balance, things that help you in life otherwise as well. Why is good running form important in softball? It's important because you get to the base faster and you're more likely to be safe. <laughs> I expected some con- considered response about people's joints, but it's all about winning, I suppose. Talk to me about the relationship among the players, Maggie. Uh, do you find that you motivate each other to some extent? Yes. There are some players that come who haven't played in 30, 40 years, and to see them just come out there and to see the athlete in them just come. It's like the athlete is there in everyone. And, uh, you know, when the fun goes out of of, uh, sports, there's something out of balance when that happens, that if you can have fun while you're playing or working out, you know, that makes all the difference in the world. It's so interesting. We just had on the head of the Colorado High School Athletics Association talking about how much pressure young athletes are under these days. And she said something similar, which is that the moment the fun is gone, as at least as some element of the sport, that's when it starts to get scary. That's when the pressure becomes, you know, uh, something that can be crushing. Mm-hmm. When we visited uh, your your practice uh, I think what struck us is how receptive the players are to coaching and the gratitude they expressed when you gave them feedback. Is that unusual in athletes? I don't think it's unusual in athletes that haven't had opportunity. When I coached at the college level, they were not as receptive. They often felt they already knew everything and there wasn't anything new to learn in spite of the fact they could look at professional athletes who are practicing every day and still learning. Oh, a bit of a hubris there. Maggie, how do you respond to the coach's feedback, do you think? Um, you know, when you get to be our age, if you don't have something out there that pulls your, pulls you forward, that really challenges you, you lose interest in life. And women... Uh, of our age, when we don't have something like that, we isolate. Hmm. And, um, and so this, this, this is, provides connection for you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Thanks for being with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. It's enjoyable. Thank you. 
86-year-old Maggie McCluskey plays second base for the Colorado Peaches and her coach is Gail Clock. They competed last month in the Huntsman Games. That's an international senior competition in Utah. They went 0-6, but had to play teams with a much lower average age, somewhere in the 70s. That's Colorado Matters for today, with special thanks to Anthony Cotton. I'm Ryan Warner. We're tuned to CPR News.